Greetings, I'm Leslie Pollard, president of Oakwood University, and uh, we salute you from the beautiful campus of Oakwood University, where we are celebrating 125 years of service to our church, to our community, and to our country. Today, we will visit an Old Testament drama that is pregnant with insights and instructions for how we can meet the giants that face us. It comes from the text, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 41 through 48. It says, so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. Verse 42, and when the Philistine looked around and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then, listen now, listen, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands Verse 48 forms the crux of our passage, of our sermon today. So it was, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, watch this now, David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. How to meet your giants. Lord, bless us as we share your word and as we receive it into our hearts. May we walk in victory in Jesus' name, amen. The following quote uh, summarizes the impact that you can have on any organization where you serve. The quote says, a man has no more character than he can command in a time of crisis. This is Ron Ralph Sockman, organizational commentator. And from John Beck, who wrote in the Westminster Theological Sem uh, Seminary Journal, he said, and I love this story because he summarizes, of course, the story of David and Goliath. He says, the details of the story of David and Goliath are vivid and memorable. Even those less familiar with the Bible as a whole can typically picture the lightly armed David running toward the weapon-laden Goliath. Given the colorful detail within the narrative, he says, the reader can almost hear the whirling sling, the whistle of the smooth stone as it sails through the air, and the thud that marks the collapsing frame of the gigantic opponent. I love that summary of the story, but here is what I would want to say about it. That's the cradle roll version of the story. The deep reader of this narrative knows that this story, if it is about anything, it is a story about how to navigate a crisis. And crisis is the key word in this text. Three crises frame the story for us. Um, the first crisis is a crisis in 1 Samuel 17 over national security. Interestingly, it was almost 20 years ago 
September 11, 2001, that the attack on the Twin Towers catapulted our nation into a national security crisis that has forever changed America. Look at airport security before 9-1-1, 9-11, and after 9-11. Look at what happens in international travel. Look at political campaigns. All because an Islamic militant group named Al-Qaeda used the threat of terror to invade the American psyche. And on January 6th, the attack on the U.S. Capitol has simply heightened America's sense of vulnerability some 20 years later. Well, guess what? As you enter the first verses of chapter 17, there is a sense of vulnerability. Israel is a young monarchy that has stumbled into a crisis, a crisis that casts a long shadow over Israel's safety. And so the first challenge of chapter 17 is the 9-11 issue of national security. Israel's terrorism appears in the form of the Philistine menace. This is evident from two important facts. First Samuel, this book from which we are reading, mentions the Philistines more than 80 times. Everywhere you turn in 1 Samuel, Israel is shadowed by the menacing Philistines. The second is that the Philistines also represent that group of people who actually invaded and captured the Ark of God. So think about it now. These Philistines, not only have they a general threatening presence, but Israel has experienced in chapters 4 through 6 of 1 Samuel, where they actually stole that most precious symbol of God's presence with his people. They actually stole the ark. And so chapters 4 through 6 detail their victory, how they captured the ark of the covenant, and it landed in the hands of the Philistine Pentopolis. Now that means five cities. Gaza, Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, those five coastal cities that the Philistines occupied because Ramses II had banished them there after they attempted a failed coup on the country of Egypt. But they ca and they captured the ark. But, but what they didn't know, that ark in unclean hands was not the prize that they thought it was. Because every time they put it in the temple, it knocked over the Philistine gods. This ark was like a block of high-grade radioactive plutonium and it radiated trouble for the Philistines. For Jehovah was not some deity that you could capture and domesticate. He was the king of the cosmos. Puppies can be domesticated, but not a lion. So the Philistines got more than they bargained for. And though the ark was subsequently returned to Israel, the destruction of the worship center at Shiloh endured as a painful memory. And so the first crisis in 1 Samuel 17 is the crisis of national security. And notice now, the beginning passages say that the Philistines are in Sukkot in Judah. That means the place where they're described is they have already breached the borders of Israel and they are actually functioning on Israel's home court. The second crisis presented in the text is not the crisis of national security, but the crisis of national identity. In 1 Samuel 17, Israel wobbles about like a stiff-legged toddler in a playpen called a monarchy. God wanted a theocracy, 
But Israel wanted to be a monarchy. First Samuel 8, 19, they said, we want to be like the other nations. Israel wanted a king to be like the other nations. But then again, it didn't. So Israel wanted to be like the other nations until it didn't want to be like the other nations. And so Israel oscillates between its pre-monarchy reliance on God and its choice to join the United Nations states of the region by choosing a king. After all, Israel said we want to be like the other nations, but then it didn't. So the nagging question is, do we belong to the king with a capital K or do we belong to the king with a lowercase k? And Israel could never figure out what it wanted to be. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, once the calling of God is upon your life, you can never be like the other nations. Once God has touched you and anointed you and equipped you and outfitted you to do his work, you can never completely be like the other nations. Israel could not be like the other nations. What other nations was liberated from, what other nation was liberated from 400 years of suffocating enslavement so miraculously? What other nation was guided through the dry seabed of the Red Sea while beetling walls of, a wa of water stood in vertical attention, saluting the parading people of God as they passed by? What other nation was guided across the blistering desert sands by an air-conditioned cloud by day and a thermal, thermally insulated pillar of fire by night. What other nation, what other nation received daily fresh deliveries of manna browned in the toasters of glory? What other nation lapped sweet water from the granite cleft of a lifeless rock? But the drive for acceptance overwhelmed the sacred memory of deliverance. And that's why every now and then, you ought to take a moment to remember. You need to take a moment to let mind's eye take you back to where he found you, how he found you, when he found you, and why he found you. The hound of heaven came looking for you. He found you drowning your pain away in a bar. He found you bound in a prison of pornography. He found you addicted to murderous substances. He found you. He found you in a hotel you should never have checked into. He found you. Not only did he find you, he rescued you. Because his work, like the hound of heaven, was also a rescue operation. Not a recovery operation, but a rescue operation. He found you. And like the prodigal, he talked to you until you came to yourself and you said, I will arise and go to my father. I'm going back home. And like the prodigal, he delivered you from the illusion of inclusion. You see, the prodigal was never one with his foreign friends. He was always, whether obedient or disobedient, whether faithful or unfaithful, whether in the pew or in the brothel, he was always the rich man's son. And one day the light came on and he said, I will arise and go to my father. There are people who assume that acceptance by other churches in the Christian family means that we must abandon our unique remnant identity. But that, my brothers and sisters, is a mistake. Let me tell you the secret to greater influence with other churches. It is not to abandon our identity, but to radically throw ourselves into service to our communities. When we give ourselves to our communities where our churches reside, when we give bread to the hungry and water to the thirsty and clothing to the naked and care for the orphans and widows, 
when we care more about feeding the homeless than rushing to our church potlucks, when we see in the AIDS patient the face of Jesus Christ, radical service to our communities will set us apart. Because people will then ask, who are you? Why do you do what you do? Then we can say, and we can say, and we can say, it's not us, it's our God. You remember the story in, uh, of Hezekiah, don't you? You remember that story, story of Hezekiah, when the Babylonian ambassadors came, and Isaiah, after they left, Isaiah went to Hezekiah, and he said, um, uh, King, could you tell me something? What, those ambassadors, I heard you had a visit. Yes, I did. Did, did, what, what did you say to them? He said, well, I showed them my gold. I showed them all the gold and I showed them the temple and I, I showed them all of our possessions. And he said, Isaiah said, but did you show them your God? When we show people our God, then they will say, what makes these people different is why I want to know who they are. So listen to me, everybody. This is Ellen G. White. This is what she says. She says, we, quote, we are Seventh-day Adventists, and of this name, we are never to be ashamed. As a people, we must take our firm stand upon truth and righteousness. righteousness. Thus, we shall glorify God, and we are delivered from the dangers, not ensnared and corrupted by them, that this must, that, that this may be, we must look ever to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Letter 106, 1903. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Every single day, we don't have to abandon our identity in pursuit of the illusion of inclusion. We have to live out our faith in radical communication, in radical service to our communities. Now, here's the last challenge in the text. I said there were three crises. The first crisis, first crisis, national security. Second crisis, national identity. Here's the third crisis, national leadership. The third crisis lingering over chapter 17 the first Samuel is a crisis of leadership. The Philistine threat to national security and the confusion over national identity is compounded by questions surrounding the national leadership of Israel. Here's the question. Is it the sitting king in chapter 17? Who is the king? Is it the sitting king in chapter 17? Or is it the anointed king in chapter 16? Because you will remember that God anointed David in chapter 16. So you've got an anointed king and you've got a sitting king. So the question is, which one of these is actually the functional king? And guess what will expose it? It's the crisis. The crisis. His name is Goliath. He represents all of Israel's shadowy fears. He is Israel's nightmare on Elm Street. He emerges from the shadows of the Philistine city of Gath. He stands six cubits in a span. That's almost 12 feet tall, using the royal cubit as a measure. And there is a difference between the royal cubit and the common cubit. Just as a point of information, you will look at some text and say he was nine and a half feet tall. The common cubit would make him nine and a half feet tall. The royal cubit would put him at 12 feet tall. Ellen G. White follows the, the, the royal cubit when you read her books. So she says he's 12 feet tall. He is the first leader to actually appear in chapter 17 because he is called a champion. He weighs in, we estimate, at almost 900 pounds. He is the first leader to appear because he uses the Hebrew definite article to introduce himself. Am I not Goliath, the Philistine? I love that. The Philistine. The Philistine. That leads 
That means I lead a fighting federation of warrior states, and we are here and ready to fight. Now look at all of the leadership attributes of Goliath before we go on to the text. Look at him. He has an imposing appearance. We've been told that really in terms of leadership studies, the taller a leader is, the more likelihood it is that they will have a favorable impression. Not always, but often. He has an imposing appearance. He has skill, the competence of a champion. Number three, he's an influencer. He has the support of the Philistine armies. Number four, he has confidence. He says, I'll give you a flesh to the birds. Number, number five, he has experience in battle. He's described as a boy soldier. He had learned to kill early in life. He has technology savvy. The Bible says his spear has an iron tip. And then he has success in every engagement, but he also has one fatal flaw, and that is his egotistical trust in self and his false gods. And so when he saw little David, he disdained him. Every day, he strode out onto the field of battle, and he shouted at God's people, send me a man. Here he comes dressed in 125 pounds of armor, a bronze helmet to protect his massive head, bronze chest plates of scale across that broad chest of his, a bronze thigh covers and shin covers, a huge shield that requires a separate shield bearer. And Goliath brandishes a bronze spear with a 15 pound iron tip. And this tells us something because the iron age followed the bronze age it means that this is the best of cutting edge, cutting edge military technology. So guess what? Here he is every single day. He comes out onto the field of battle and he comes out for 40 days. You can see it, can't you? Israel is on one side of the valley. And of course, the Philistines are on the other side. And Goliath steps out every single day right into the thick, right between the two opposing camps. And he shouts out an invitation, Israel, send me a man that he might fight against me. Goliath looms over Israel's horizon like a man mountain of fighting technology. And Goliath shows up every day on time and he gathers across from the Israelites every day for 40 days. Now, let me tell you something. In the Bible, the number 40 always represents a period of test and then a period of break and then a subsequent breakthrough. Whether it was raining 40 days and 40 nights and then a breakthrough. Test and then breakthrough. Or whether it was Jesus in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and then a breakthrough. This number 40, Israel marching through the desert for 40 years and then a breakthrough. So every single day, every single day, for 40 days, Goliath marches out onto the field of battle. But guess what? The Bible is telling us we should expect a breakthrough. And here he comes. His name is David. Saul is somewhere cowering in a tent. I could say a lot more about Saul, but I won't. But you should read his narrative. After he was rejected in chapter 15, because he refused to execute God's command against the Amalekites, this Saul now is bereft of the Spirit of God, and he is shuddering in fear because he doesn't know what the future holds. He has no confidence. Saul should be the one out leading the battle, but he is a coward. He's cowardly because the Spirit of God has left him. Let me tell you, some of our fear is related to the fact that the Spirit of God is not with us. 
Because when you have the spirit, like on the day of Pentecost, you will be bold for God. Now you will be wise. We won't force our faith on anyone. We will look for opportunities to share our faith, but there is always a tendency to want God to be glorified through our witness. And so, David steps onto the field of battle. And every single day, after 40 days, Saul has been challenging Israel, and Israel has cowered in its camp. So now you can see it, can't you? Day 41 has dawned. I can still see the sun rising above the valley. I can also see, as I think about the few, as I think about the scene in mind's eye, I can see the sun rising in the valley. I can see shafts of yellow sunlight piercing through the gray morning mist. I can see all of that. I can see, I can see Goliath stepping out onto the field of battle and roaring at the people of God. I can see that. I can see Goliath standing out and shouting once more, send me a man. And this time on day 41, I can see little David squirting from behind the Israelite lines. And now standing up and facing Goliath, eyeball to eyeball, not more than 40 yards away from each other. I visited that site. And now, after all the cursing, David begins to speak. He says, you come against me with a sword and a spear, Goliath, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you why David's response is important. David's response is important because it instructs us on how to meet our giants. That's why his response is important. Notice now, when Goliath threatens David, David does three things. He makes three moves that help him to successfully defeat the giant that he faces. Oh, did I say that everybody will face a giant? Did I say that? Did I remind you that if you just keep on living, your giant is waiting for you? Whether it's the giant of illness in this corona pandemic, it may, pandemic, it may be the sickness of a loved one. Uh, did I tell you that if you keep living, if I keep living, we're going to meet our giants? Our giants are always out there waiting for us. They are always there, whether it's marital discord, whether it's financial challenge, whatever it is, our giants are waiting for us. But if you listen to David carefully, David will tell you how to meet your giant. So notice now, when Saul tells David that you can't meet the giant because you're just a boy from your youth, notice what David begins to do. You got to read the whole story. He begins to tell Saul a story. Here's the story. He says, okay. He says, King, he says, one night I was out keeping my father's sheep. He said, and I was keeping my father's sheep. He said, I heard a roar and there was a lion and that lion came and it had one of my father's sheep and I grabbed the lion by his beard. He said, and then there was a bear one night that came and grabbed my father's sheep and I beat the bear. He said, and I delivered the sheep. And he said, and oh, King, if God can deliver me from the lion and the bear, surely God can deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Key one, whenever you face your giant, you don't have to nurture fear. All you've got to do is you've got to remember your spiritual resume. Download your spiritual resume. That's what David does. And when he looks at his spiritual resume, he sees two things. He sees, number one, that God has selected him. That's his anointing. And he notices how God has protected him. And it, that gives him confidence. 
But if you just download your spiritual resume, when you face challenges, if you don't take the next step, you're not going to succeed. Notice now, after he downloads his spiritual resume, then Goliath flies into a rage. Come to me, little boy. I'm going to pluck the fresh from your ribs. I'm going to, he flies into a rage. He flies into a rage. And now David does something else. Watch this now. David says something else. David says, he says, look, he says, you and I are going to work this out, except I've got one shot. Now, earlier, Saul had said to him, I'm going to give you some armor. I'm going to give you some weapons because Saul was a carnal man. So Saul believed that if Goliath had a sword, you should have a sword. If Goliath had armor, you had armor. But here's what David knows. David knows that you cannot defeat Goliath. You can't beat the devil by using the devil's weapon. And so David says, I got you. He says, I got five stones. He says, and King, this will be enough. Look at that second step. Look at that other step that David takes. It's a very important step. Not only does he download his spiritual resume, watch this now, he uploads his God-given identity. David was a shepherd, not a military man. But the confidence that he had was that God has given me everything I need. He has packed me. I am pre-packed to defeat my giant. And you are too. Everything you need to have victory in your situation, God has already pre-packed it inside of you. So don't go on trying to be somebody else, like somebody else, pray like somebody else. Pray like you pray. Even if it's Peter's prayer, Lord, save me. He didn't pray like the rabbis. Pray like you need to pray and watch God unleash that prepackaged gift that he has already implanted within you. Well, David does that, and now Goliath flies into a rage. And Goliath begins to rush down on him. And what I love about the text in verse 48, here's what it says. It says that David didn't take a backward step, but your Bible says David ran to meet him. Watch this. When he runs to beat him, he says, you come against me with the sword, but I come to you in the name of of the Lord of hosts. So there's the third thing that we have to do if we want to defeat our giants. The first, download our spiritual resume. The second, upload our God-given identity. And number three, he says, I come to you in the name. You got to plug into the power of the name. <clears throat> now, David pulls out that stone. He drops it into a sling. Pop, pop. And now you hear the helicopter whir of that stone as it begins to whiz through the mountain air. It bites into the forehead of Goliath with a mighty thud. And suddenly, this man who had made the nations tremble, now he trembles and he falls face down in the dust. But David is determined that this giant will never get up again. So little shepherd's feet that had been cursed now mount his heaving torso. Little shepherd's hands unsheath Goliath's sword. And with a, I'm trying to keep this PG, with a pop, he decapitates the giant. You want victory? You want to know how to meet your giant? Here's what you've got to do. You've got to download your spiritual resume. You are not here by accident. You are not here by coincidence. We don't believe in luck. We believe in providence. God has placed you exactly where he wants you to be. You've got to download your spiritual resume because that will show that God has selected you and that God has protected you. You want to defeat your giant? You want to know how to meet him? Upload your God-given identity. Mama's prayers were wonderful prayers, but mama's prayers can't suffice 
can't substitute for your prayers. Brothers' gifts are wonderful gifts, but they can't substitute for your gifts. Use your gifts to meet the giant. God has pre-packed you with everything you need in order to walk in victory. And last but not least, don't depend upon yourself. Don't depend upon your past. Lean into the name. He said, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. May God bless you to have victory every day as you go out and you meet your giant. Amen and amen.